Hello, I am Jeremy Kingsbury. This is Way Too Twog's Bagpipe and History Podcast, the show where you come along with me as I explore the likely repertoire of 18th and early 19th century bagpipers. Let's listen to some tunes. Hello, so on the episode this week... Um, Kind of a loose organization here. Um, back on May 26th, uh, Patrick Sky passed away. And, you know, I just have been thinking about how indebted I am to his kind of musical book reprints for kind of the Piper that I am today um, and my interest in historic tunes. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at, uh, I kind of decided to look through the books I have of Pat's and, um, play some tunes. So I play a lot out of O'Farrell's Pocketbook Companion and O'Farrell's National Tutor, but I've always sort of neglected the other historic collection that Sky printed, uh, Cockley's and Gahagan's kind of tutor for Union or Irish Pipes. Every once in a while I'll play them here and there, but uh, this week's episode I, I tried to pay a little bit more attention to them, uh, and so that's what we're going to do. Um, so beginning, uh, so the tunes we're going to hear in no particular order, it's kind of turned into a bit of a deep dive into the rakes of Westmeath or the humors of Westmeath, but, um, yeah. So from Coakley, uh, which is Tudor, published around 1840, you're going to hear Coakley's Hornpipe, the rakes of Westmeath and Llewellyn, favorite Welsh air. Um, from Burke Thomuth, Thomuth, uh, who published around 1746, we're going to hear the rakes of Westmeath. Uh, from O'Farrell, we're going to hear Waterford's Waltz and O'Farrell's Hornpipe, which are two tunes that supposedly he wrote. That's sort of the theme here. Uh, that was going to be the theme, but really turned into a Westmeath theme instead. Uh, from Gahagan, which was published around 1746 as well, a tutor for pastoral pipes. We're going to hear Gahagan's Frisk, The Humors of Westmeath, uh, Ravencroft's Fancy in the Chocolate Pot. Um, we're going to hear Robert Bremner's setting for Ravencroft's Fancy as well. Uh, then from William Bingley, we're also going to hear a setting for the Ash Grove or Llewellyn. Uh, from Wilson of Wilson's Ballroom, we're going to hear Rakes of Westmeath. Francis O'Neill, we're going to hear Rakes of Westmeath. And McFadden, we're going to hear Rakes of Westmeath. Uh, or the, that's the James Aird book after James Aird passed away. Uh, and then, since I still have these border pipes burning a hole in my pipe case, uh, we're going to listen to William Dixon's How She Will Never Be Guided, as well as Robert Riddle's How She'll Never Be Guided from uh, about 60 years later. Whew. Anyway, that's the tunes, and uh, yeah, I guess maybe I'll talk about Pat. I kind of want to do the thing again where I start with border pipes. <laughs> Feels weird to be like, well, I'll just get these out of the way. Um, but I'm going to start with these border pipe tunes, and... Uh, and we'll talk about Pat a bit and play some more music. So anyway, let's start with uh, William Dixon's 1733 setting of How She Will Never Be Guided.
Hey, and then uh, in the notes, of course, for Matt Seattle's publication of uh, William Dixon's book, uh, Matt mentions um, kind of several connecting tunes, but um, mostly Robert Riddle's How Shall Ne'er Be Guided, which is a collection from 1794 of Scotch border and Glaswegian tunes. Uh, it's pretty good and, you know, different, uh, different enough certainly to to warrant getting a playthrough by me so uh here is riddle I, I i think this might be my first riddle tune there's tons of really interesting ones in here though um you can look at it uh, of course on ross's music page um yeah definitely going to hear more from riddle in the future so anyway here is uh same tune slightly different name from 1794 So yeah, I don't often use the A drone on those uh, Banton border pipes, but that's that's good. I'm glad I did uh, for that setting. That's a good tune. Um, okay, so we are uh, that that's that. So let's let's move on. I guess I, I keep meaning to do some sort of autobiographical podcast kind of episode talking about uh, me and my relationship to music. Um, and bagpiping and how that all got started and keeps not happening i'm going to be in theory being like on another podcast shortly um that'll have some of that information on it maybe i don't know um but in the meantime like it's sort of weird uh realizing just how important pat sky is to me as a bagpiper you know i'm self-taught on ellen pipes uh I, I picked up a couple tutors that didn't go particularly far uh, and then eventually I got Heather Clark's tutor, which is, you know, that helped a lot. I got a lot of um, kind of my piping chops from that, but I didn't, like, I didn't finish it. And uh, I couldn't get, uh, I had a really hard time getting up to the second octave. Um, and yeah, just in embellishments and that sort of thing was sort of just foreign to me. Um, but I, you know, I played enough. I had a full set of Illin pipes probably, well, certainly before I should have, and just didn't didn't really play them much, uh, and didn't have a huge repertoire, um, that sort of thing. Anyway, then I started, um, playing in historic settings and thinking about kind of the history of Irish music and Jerry O'Sullivan's O'Farrell album came out and I was really excited by that. And then I found out that, uh, the Pat Sky publications existed where, you know, Pat, 
published the pocketbook companion the national tutor of o'farrell in this really accessible way back in a time when you know there wasn't uh, or at least i didn't know about a ton of resources online to look at things i was certainly not using any of those early abc uh, readers i think ross's music page has probably been around for quite a while um but I'm not I'm not 100% sure. I had been on like Cliff and Fipple a little bit, but um, was really starved for music. And so anyway, getting a hold of O'Farrell's Pocketbook Companion uh, was a real changing moment in my life as a piper. It was sort of cool. My mom bought it for me for Christmas. Uh, I was a young enough kid that I was still giving my mom Christmas lists. But it was sort of funny. My mom was really worried it wasn't going to show up in time because it was this year there was a blizzard uh, in North Carolina. You know, at the time, I had no connection to North Carolina whatsoever. But now, you know, having a bunch of in-laws and family down there and knowing where Pat lives or lived, uh, like, yeah, when those mountains get snowy, you're stuck <laughs> for a long time, uh, depending on what side of the mountain you're on, especially um, kind of a, a nearby county is where my in-laws uh, kind of grew up and lived for the most part, where my wife lived anyway. And like the kids in that county school, like the school would be closed for like weeks at a time uh, because of snow days. Because if you lived on the southern facing side of a mountain, the roads were just never safe to take a bus up there. And so the county high school would just be closed for weeks at a time, uh, which would always wind up extending the school year into the summer. Anyway, so there was one of these blizzards uh, in kind of early December or mid-December when my mom <laughs> bought this book. And uh, apparently she had a brief email exchange with either Pat or Kathy about like, well, I'm trying to get it out there. I'm not sure if I'll be able to get it out of the driveway. But anyway, he did uh, and got there in time for Christmas. And I just remember like that's really where I learned to pipe was looking through O'Farrell's book and getting excited and just playing in the basement of my folks' place for hours at a time, which really set in motion some probably unhealthy um, practicing habits of kind of not practicing much at all and then practicing for an hour and a half to two hours straight without any anything of a break. But that's really where like I started to, it started to make sense and be worth it to me to, to get better uh, in order to play these tunes that O'Farrell had. And O'Farrell was really important to me because he you know performed at the Covent Garden Theater and the historic site that I was um, working at, they had their offices in London, uh, less than a mile from Covent Garden. And it just seemed like, you know, it's, there's, there's really no chance. And also the, the fur traders that had their, you know, their warehouses in London, they were all sort of obsessed with being Scottish. Uh, many of them were anyway, to the point of like getting arms made. And some people have argued that Simon McTavish became chief of Clan McTavish. Um, but there's definitely, they were really keen on this Scottish heritage. And O'Farrell, of course, is the piper for Oscar Malvina in the same time that a lot of these fur traders are over there in London. And Oscar Malvina is being billed as, you know, the Ocean Poems pantomime. So I'm just, I was sure that these fur traders went to see, um, went to see Oscar and Malvina and maybe sought out O'Farrell when he was performing at other venues. If you look at, you know, the images of O'Farrell, the image of O'Farrell um, or Courtney, if it's just an adjustment, but either way, the costume that they wore for Oscar Malvina really was as Scottish up as could be. So looks like either um, tartan um, breeches or maybe trues and, you know, a Scots bonnet, those big Hummel bonnets or Kilmarnock bonnets, um, like kind of the stove, the straight up and down ones with dicing, not the uh, ones with knees. Anyway, very Scottishy, and so I think those fur traders were really attracted to it. So thanks to Pat Sky, uh, like I was able to grow into the piper I am today. And a couple of years later, I picked up the uh, Gaffigan and Coakley Tutor as well, which are just published in one one book. And when my uh, my wife. When I, when I got married, my, my brother-in-law is a piper as well, and he had been interested in Ellen pipes, and because he lived in North Carolina, and Pat Sky had those, um, you know, budget sets or practice sets so people could start playing early on, uh, my brother-in-law got a Pat Sky set, uh, a practice set, and so I got a chance to play around with one of Pat's, um, you know, Ellen pipes that he had made, gosh, maybe only five years ago or so. So towards the end of his uh, making career, I believe, uh, and I remember kind of talking to somebody about about it. I think it was Tim Britton. He's like, 
well, you know, Pat lived with Seamus Ennis, right? And I was like, what are you talking about? No way. Uh, and I just didn't realize kind of how, just how interesting a life Pat Sky had. And I feel like that is happening all over to me again, kind of reading his obituaries and things. Um, like having any sort of a discussion of how Pat Sky is cool and important to me on this podcast feels, uh, I mean, it's totally self-serving, but obviously Pat Sky doesn't need that. Dude has an obituary in the New York Times, which feels uh, like a comp, like that feels like, uh, like winning a little bit. Um, but yeah, Pat had really interesting life, spent a lot of time in the Greenwich Village folk scene, put out a bunch of albums. Uh, and I, I just, I wonder how many other Pipers are going through it. I'm going through right now of like, oh yeah, I vaguely knew he was a folk singer too, but I just think of him as having these amazing stories of Seamus Ennis um, and and these old collection of, of bagpipe things. So, uh, and that awesome Tommy Rack album. Yeah, go check out go check out Pat's guy stuff. The he's got a bunch of folks uh, folk albums as well as uh, you know a good Illin Pipe and Fiddle album with his wife Kathy called Down to Us, which is available on streaming platforms um, and that sort of thing. I'll have a link to a documentary that was filmed for the North Carolina like public television about Pat and his pipe making, as well as some links to those obituaries if you want to check them out. Anyway, so. Let's get started with the tunes. We're going to start with the oldest ones first. That always feels like a good way to go. So um, this is... Uh, we're going to start with Ravenscroft's Fancy. So that makes sense. So Ravenscroft is um, like a English... I think English. Uh, most of his work is published in uh, England, and he certainly worked at Covent Garden Theatre uh, and things in the, I think, late 17th century, uh, maybe in the 17th century anyway, and has some really early collections of tunes. I've been talking with Pete Stewart, and um, Pete is, is fully converting me to a 17th century musician, it feels like. I'm going to have to... We'll see. I'm going to definitely have a 17th century episode in the near future. So uh, this Ravencroft's fancy tune got me excited. So this is from uh, Pat Sky's publication of Gaffigan. Uh, and you can look at um, PDFs and things on Ross's music page as well. But anyway, 1746, here is Gaffigan's fancy, uh, or sorry, here is Gaffigan's setting for Ravencroft's fancy. Um, yeah, so this is a setting for pastoral pipes, uh, which of course are kind of arguably the predecessor to Irish pipes or Ellen pipes. <laughs> And then um, we're going to play another setting for the same tune a little bit later. Uh, this is from after Robert Bremner moved to London, at least this printing of it is. Uh, and so this is from a collection from Robert Bremner I haven't really looked at before, um, but it's 1763 or later. And it is called, uh, <laughs> I kind of love how some of these titles of books become advertisements in their own sense. So uh, Bremner titles this The Delightful Pocket Companion for the German Flute um, and a bunch of other kind of 
um, positive things to, to reflect it. It's sort of like uh, like the 18th century version of clickbaity titles. Well, you gotta get Bremner's new pocket companion for the German flute. It's delightful. Um, anyway, here is Ravenscroft's Fancy from Robert Bremner, uh, this time on Whistle. And for this next one, let's do Gahagen's Frisk. Uh, this tune is why I'm pronouncing Gahagen's name that way. It's spelled wildly, um, but uh, yeah, in the, the tune itself, or like in the book itself, Gahagen, that's how he spells He spells out Gahagen's Frisk differently than how his name appears on the title. Uh, so I'm taking that as a guide of how it was pronounced. Uh, anyway, so here is Gahagen's Frisk. The goal here was to kind of pick some tunes that uh, were 
you know, don't have a lot of concordances that I feel the need to explore uh, in order just to kind of highlight these collections. Um, and so Gahagan's Frisks seems to have been written by himself and doesn't have a lot of links. And this next one too, The Chocolate Pot, uh, was also written uh, seemingly by Gahagan. It's sort of funny, the traditional tune archive entry for The Chocolate Pot, like if you look at the tune annotation, all it has is a bunch of discussion of the history of chocolate <laughs> rather than um, Gahagan or anything else so anyway here is the chocolate pot now remember Gahagan you know it's published in 1746 and it's a pastoral pipe tutor um, rather than you know an island pipe and so the foot joint is still very much a thing and the cover um, kind of the image that we have of Gahagan you can clearly see he's got a foot joint and plays it um, standing up and so there's a low C um, that's a pretty essential part of the chocolate pot and I'm not sure that I did it justice in reality um, but I think it still sort of works as a tune. Shouldn't have said anything. You might not have noticed. But uh, anyway, so here is the chocolate pot from Gagan. <laughs> I said the intention was to not play a tune with a bunch of kind of their versions of or concordances to explore that didn't wind up happening so uh, this next tune kind of begins this Westmeath um, exploration that uh, makes up a good chunk of this episode so this is the humors of Westmeath from uh, Gaffigan or Gaffigan rather so 1746 and then we're going to hear a bunch of different versions of it but We'll do Gahagan first. just don't know so so the way this started i actually wasn't going to play the humors of westmeath i uh, wound up playing several different versions of the rakes of westmeath which to my ear sounds pretty similar uh, except the rakes of westmeath is a 9-8 and the humors is a 6-8 um, there are some pretty striking differences and uh, i guess we'll just see as we go along so um, this first one we just played of course is from Gahagan from 1746 I've got another one from 1746 it's actually published by the same guy by Simpson um, but this is a collection that is new to me that I am really looking forward to looking at again this is uh, Burke Thymuth's uh, 12 English and 12 Irish Heirs um, so this is the Rakes of Westmeath uh, with quite a few kind of interesting variations 
Uh, and I think I did this on Whistle. But we'll see. Is it is it the same thing? Humors of Westmeath, Rakes of Westmeath. Is it just 9, 8, or 6, 8 differences? Uh, we'll see once I listen back. Those whistle uh, big variation sets were pretty challenging this week between this big variation of Rakes of Westmeath and Ravenscroft's Fancy from Bremner. Um, So, yeah, definitely the same tune, and uh, we're going to hear a bunch of different things. Kind of thinking on it and looking back at it some more, it seems like there are too easy to identify differences between the, the different versions of Rakes of Westmeath and Humors of Westmeath, which I used to just not pay any attention to, but after a discussion with Pete Stewart and Matt Seattle a little bit, I feel like I should be paying closer attention to the note that a melody starts on. Uh, and so, you know, Gahagan starts at the... Uh, so does Burke. And then this next one we're going to play, Coakley, also does that. Uh, and then the other ones I'm going to play you, uh, they just, rather than walking up to that D, they just start... Uh, the interesting thing to me is that Gahagan's setting is so robust that sort of the last two parts uh, already have that that version of the tune that we'll hear from, uh, you know, Aird and Wilson and O'Neill. But anyway, first let's go to uh, Coakley's tutor for Irish Union Pipes. This is from 1840. Um, a little bit different, but pretty similar to to Gahagan, even though it's a, a nine eight. So anyway, here it is.
it's sort of a funny funny phenomenon here um so uh i planned on just recording coakley's version of the rakes westmeath before realizing there's a bunch of other things to do with it uh, which is why you heard me play through it three times the other reason you heard me play through it three times was like my initial experience with Pat Sky's books, I had a breakthrough kind of playing through these these tunes for the podcast this week. Uh, I have asked Ryan Benke a couple times to try to show me how to backstitch. I have looked at the um, you know the resources that Mikey Smith uh, wrote out that Pat Darcy has uploaded to Illin Obsession, uh, and I've never been able to figure it out. And while playing through the Rakes of Westmeath. I just randomly was kind of fudging around on my channer and was, uh, honestly, I was playing Krenlua's on my Ellen channer uh, and then kind of playing around with that. And then like, ooh, I kind of like that. I kind of like that embellishment and sort of reverse engineered a backstitch uh, from, from yeah, from just playing a bunch of different notes on the channer. So it's, it's sort of weird. I don't know if anybody's experienced this, if you've been playing for a bunch of years and then switch over to a new instrument and kind of realize there's a bunch of things to learn and you don't really remember how you taught yourself, like how to do all the embellishments in the first place. That is what I have felt about backstitches for the last five years. But uh, all of a sudden, there, I managed it. Um, but the other thing, the reason you heard it three times is I was so pleased with, you know, getting it, figuring out backstitches, and I liked the tune so much. I was, um, tunes that I like too much, I wind up recording too many times because I think, ooh, that's going to go on the best of album uh, for 2021. Um, but kind of listening back when I brought the rest of my drones in, it was out of tune anyway, so I'm going to have to revisit uh, that tune anyway. But anyway, backstitching, fun stuff. Let's move on. So, like I said, there's uh, a couple main reasons or main ways that this um that rakes of westmeath gets played so we're going to do uh rakes of westmeath from john mcfadian or again this is generally just thought of as james aired even though this volume came out after aired had died um so this is rakes of westmeath from uh from mcfadian it's um it's a different I don't know. It's it's a little bit simpler. There's some quarter notes there. Kind of there's more quarter notes in it than any of the other versions we're going to hear. And the main difference, of course, is that it starts with that uh, that high. It starts with the D rather than walking its way up to it. Anyway, here it is. So McFadden's setting is probably from 1800, 1801 or so. Uh, this next one, very similar. This is from Wilson's uh, Ballroom uh, Companion, or com Wilson's Companion to the Ballroom. I just It's always interesting to me seeing the tunes that show up in Wilson and kind of where they come from. You know, it's a big book about, you know, ballroom dancing in England, so it's, it's cool to see these other tunes in here. And it's also interesting that um, Wilson kind of, when he's, he lists the tune, the Rakes of Westmeath, and then in brackets he writes Old Irish. So anyway, here is his version that is very similar to the McFadden version, except it's got, uh, doesn't have quite as many quarter notes. clarify wilson setting is from 1816 um there's a couple other settings um that are more in line with um gagan and um burke and those those first three that i played from the hibernian muse um they show up that same way of kind of walking up to the walking up to the d uh, anyway we're going to do one last version of this tune from francis o'neill so this is around 1900 and francis o'neill adds uh, a little bit more fanciful part b kind of ending so here is that and then we can be done with this tune
right, and now we're going to kind of return to familiar territory. So um, this next set of tunes comes from O'Farrell, uh, both from his pocketbook companions and from the National Tutor. I was trying to find tunes that you know, O'Farrell wrote and found a couple, but they both are like I found a couple that I haven't played in the podcast yet, but they are both attached to kind of content ideas for future episodes. Too much to play here. One uh, has kind of an interesting body connection and the other is uh, about Wellington. And I think I'm trying to pester a buddy, uh, Abe, to do a guest episode talking about Pipers at Waterloo, which might be a good place to play um, O'Farrell's tune, Welcome to Wellington. Um, or Wellington's coming or something like that. Uh, anyway, so instead what we're going to hear is uh, O'Farrell's Hornpipe, which does seem to be composed by him. Goodman has it in his collection exactly the same, according to traditional tune archive. I didn't go hunting, um, but under the same name. And then we're going to play a tune that I've already had on the podcast before, uh, the Waterford Waltz, which I just love to pieces. Um, O'Farrell's Hornpipe as well. I mean, I first heard it. Uh, it's one of the, the many excellent tracks on Jerry O'Sullivan's um, albums about O'Farrell playing. So anyway, here are these two tunes also from O'Farrell books that Pat Sky kind of digitized, uh, cleaned up and published. And that's another track that is victim of me thinking it's going to be on the album. Um, yeah, my tempo issues just got worse, so wound up kind of cutting the second playthrough of Waterford Waltz. Uh, still a really cracking tune. Um, yeah, good tune. All right, uh, let's switch over here. Let's look at Coakley's. So Coakley's uh, tutor for the Irish Union Pipes came out in 1840 and is uh, quite a bit more detailed in terms of how to play. It's a, I'm kind of, I've been considering and hoping to do a uh, audiobook version of Coakley's Tutor because it includes like how to play the regulators and some notation stuff for it. That's really cool. Um, 
it's sort of frustrating. My regulators are still quite a bit overpowering my chanter, um, which is why we haven't heard them and why I haven't been playing them at all, because they're not particularly pleasant to play in combination with the chanter right now till I make some pretty drastic adjustments. So been too afraid to do that. <laughs> anyway, so let's look at uh, Coakley's Hornpipe. Uh, again, uh, the goal was to play tunes that uh, don't have a lot of other versions to look at, and this tune seems to be written by Coakley, uh, and here you go. <laughs> I didn't see Coakley's Hornpipe in O'Farrell's collection. Um, a couple of the tunes that show up in Coakley's are in O'Farrell's, one of which is the Rakes of Westmeath. Uh, I decided not to bother playing O'Farrell's setting because it's identical to Coakley's, and similarly, uh, this next tune I'm going to play, uh, Llewellyn, is virtually identical between Coakley and O'Farrell. It's interesting that um, you know Coakley comes out in 1840, but uh, in Coakley's setting for Llewellyn, it still includes a low C, uh, which seems pretty common with the Welsh settings as well, um, or Welsh setting as well. Uh, but O'Farrell setting, which comes out quite a bit earlier. So in, in my head, I always think of pastoral pipes as sort of losing way to union pipes and that foot joint going away. But clearly by 1840, it is still very much around uh, and using that, that low C that the, the chanter gives you was common enough. Uh, O'Farrell setting for Llewellyn, has it, um, it does have the low C in there, but it also has a high C, like as an option. <laughs> That's how I always read that, as you can play this or that. Um, so O'Farrell is clearly writing for, with some people in mind, that didn't have a foot joint, as uh, is, is how I would interpret that, or who couldn't get down that low. Uh, but first, to keep things chronological, I'm actually going to play an older setting of Llewellyn. Um, this one comes from... Uh, kind of an interesting cat. This is uh, William Bingley, who's sort of a naturalist, wound up traveling through Wales a couple times uh, in his uh, kind of college days in the 1790s or 1800. I'm not, I don't know exactly when it happened, but uh, wound up publishing a couple books about the natural history of Wales. And in the second volume of the one published in 1804, he included a collection of 16 Welsh heirs. Um, and in there is the Ashgrove or Lenon. Uh, and yeah, so we're going to play that setting first. It is quite a bit different than uh, Llewellyn from Coakley or O'Farrell or indeed kind of Ashgrove as most uh, pipers play it these days. So let's start with William Bingley's setting for the Ashgrove or Lynn Own. Don't know how to pronounce Welsh. Uh, probably even less good at it than Gaelic. I've started taking Gaelic lessons though, or like paying attention to it. And I tell you, um, it's so easy. Like, uh, saying that means that now I'm damning myself for all kinds of criticism for not, um, being better at it yet, but I, I do have other things I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, but like, I've been, you know, checking in and hanging out in these Ojibwe language tables again lately, trying to beef up my Ojibwe language chops again. It's been great. Turns out I didn't forget nearly as much as I thought. Um, 
but it's such a complex language and i've always balked at the idea of like oh it's not it's not a hard language it's you know it's easy it's like algebra if you're good with you know learning mathematical um patterns and you can learn Ojibwe. It's just really consistent and that's really nice about it. Uh, and then I started taking, they're kind of watching these uh, Gaelic by Jason on YouTube videos and granted they are YouTube videos, so it isn't like in-depth study or anything, but I'm just gobsmacked at how much easier it is in Ojibwe in terms of like you don't have to conjugate everything. Like in Ojibwe, it's a verb-based language Ojibwe, so you have to know what type of thing you're talking about. Ojibwe doesn't have gender in terms of male or female in the language, but it does have animate or inanimate, which sort of works the same way as gender might in um, like French or other languages. So that gets a little bit confusing. And since it's a verb-based language, there's sort of four ways to say everything, depending on if you're referring to a, an animate thing or an inanimate thing. And what is animate or inanimate is not painfully clear sometimes it seems like oh it's spiritual stuff is also animate but also that's not it at all at times so it's a really complicated language where you've got to pick the right verb group you've got to conjugate the noun as well as the verb in really complex forms and um and yes yeah, so like looking at these gaelic lessons where seemingly the most difficult part of the language uh in the the lessons i've watched is that there's no easy like yes or no response because it depends on the type of question you're asking like oh really that's the hard part oh okay cool 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 uh anyway that's all to say that uh i still don't speak a dang lick of welsh so i'm not sure if it's llewellyn or Linon or or how it's supposed to be pronounced but uh I should probably just call it the ash grove right um so anyway here is william bingley's the ash grove or Linon from Finally, let's do Coakley's setting for Llewellyn, uh, favorite Welsh air. It's a really good tune, uh, Llewellyn. Um, like, you know, as the Ashgrove, a lot of just kind of folky and old-time musicians seem to know it here in the United States, too. So it's easy for crossplay uh, with other folks. Uh, there's obviously another setting, uh, which we're, we're going to play. But first, I guess I just want to talk about Pat a little bit more um, before signing off. You know, I, I never got a chance to meet uh, Pat. I've heard, you know, pretty awesome stories from people. I think Nicholas Brown and I talked a little bit about him on back on Nicholas's episode. Um, and I'm really thankful. Like I had a brief conversation with him on the phone um, last year when I was trying to secure a copy of O'Farrell's National Tutor. Um, but really, I'm, I'm just super thankful to the Southern California Ellen Pipers Club for those Piper Sundays because 
you know, I, I was pretty good about attending them for five or six or 10 of them. I can't remember which, um, gotten a little too busy since the semester started up again, but, um, it, it like Pat Sky started showing up. And I, I think I mentioned that on the podcast too, that it's been great to see him kind of trading stories back and forth with, um, the musician that was there or the piper that was there and just kind of talking about piping history and his experiences in general. And so I wanted to make a recommendation. Uh, if you haven't been watching the Southern California Ellen Piper's club, um, Piper Sundays and, um, if you're kind of interested, especially in 20th century Ellen piping history, uh, and some of those big names like, you know, Leo Rosen, Leo Finn, uh, Seamus Ennis, uh, that sort of thing. I'd really recommend the Peter Brown episode of Piper Sunday. There are some amazing stories in there from both Peter Brown and Pat Skye, uh, including a pretty long discussion of Peter Brown uh, getting in a car wreck with Seamus Ennis in Westmeath. So that's fitting with doing so many versions of the rakes of Westmeath. Um, and Peter Brown tells maybe my favorite story I've ever heard about Seamus Ennis and Willie Clancy uh, kind of pranking a child coming into a pub um, in the middle of the day. <laughs> um, so it's really worth a listen, but it's, it's just great to kind of hear, to see Pat talk about and, and kind of, comment on you know his experiences and discuss those things with peter too and like i said brown's an amazing ellen piper too so when when brown does play it's it's really good stuff so you can rent those from the southern pipers or southern california ellen pipers club for five bucks on vimeo and i've got a link to that in the show notes i'm also going to link to pat sky's gofundme page it was obviously set up to help with medical expenses but it was organized by kathy sky pat's wife and i see people have made some donations um since Pat has passed away, uh, so it's still alive, and I'm, I'm j I just know that it's it's always such a nightmare, um, kind of end of life expenses and that sort of thing. So uh, I'm gonna make a donation, and um, yeah, I'm gonna try to anyway, and hopefully, if anybody feels like it, go for it. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so let's go on to the next uh, thing. So. I don't know who owns the rights to this anymore. It's streaming in various places. So um, it is very likely that this episode will end with nothing. Uh, if somebody kind of says, hey, take that down. But uh, if, I, if that does happen, you can just go to a link. You know, one of the interesting things about... Um, like, I feel weird ending the episode this way because, you know, through the course of recording it and reading all these obituaries and just reading a little bit more about Pat's guy's history, it feels weird to have a recording of somebody else uh, rather than, you know, one of Pat's folk songs or uh, a recording of him and Kathy playing music. But um, the reason that I was playing Llewellyn is because uh, Pat's guy recorded Tommy Wreck playing Llewellyn. And I was sort of looking for a tune written by Pat's guy, maybe, and came across... Uh, this story or kind of this account of recording the album that Pat posted on Cliff and Fitbull. So I'll just read that to you quick. And uh, like I said, if there's no music after that, then look in the notes because I'll, I'll link to a YouTube version of it or something along those lines. Um, probably not going to have an episode again next week uh, unless the audiobook stuff gets sorted. So don't be surprised if there is nothing there. Uh, apologies for being up uh, quite a bit later than usual. Uh, but yeah, I don't think I'm going to technically make it on the weekend, but early Monday. Uh, anyway, so Pat Sky says, from kind of a Cliff and Feppel post uh, in 2005... Uh, but Pat Sky said, I first met Tommy Reck at Seamus Ennis's and Lima Flynn's apartment located in Ballsbridge, Dublin, around 1971. My dates might be incorrect, but they are generally accurate. Over the next year, we became friends, and I asked Tommy if he would be interested in making a recording for my record label. He said that he would, but his pipes were not going. Uh, that was the main reason that the other record companies did not get to record Tommy. I asked him to give me the pipes, and I spent the next week making reeds and getting them going. When I returned the pipes, Tommy was delighted. Uh, at the time, Paul Brady had an apartment also in Dublin, which I used to make Tommy's record. On the appointed day, Tommy showed up with a manuscript of tunes that he had collected over the years. Tommy was an excellent sight reader. Uh, we spent a couple of days going through the tunes and recording with Tommy and the microphone sitting in a stairwell in Paul's apartment. One funny thing that I remember was that after the recording, uh, after the recording was over, Tommy and I went out for a pint. While standing at the bar, I gave Tommy an envelope containing $500, at that time 450 pounds in cash. Tommy was stunned and said, Jesus, I didn't know I was going to be paid. 450 pounds is a lot of money at that time when the average weekly pay was around 100 pounds. 
I uh, must say the recording and just being with Tommy is one of the high points of my life. Tommy and I remained good friends over the years until his death a while back. Tommy, by far, had the sweetest, easygoing, and at the same time complicated styles of piping I've ever heard. I sure do miss him. All the best, Patrick Sky. But um, yeah, certainly wouldn't be the pipe I am today without the kind of hard work of kind of tracking down these cool old uh, manuscripts and making them accessible before uh, I knew how to use the internet. So, um, so yeah, anyway, here is Tommy Rex playing of um, not just uh, Ashgrove, but Ashgrove into Sunny Brogan's Mazurka, which was recorded by Pat Sky. Uh, we'll see you back in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. 